listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy, and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join, but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief, because all children leave footprints on our hearts. Good morning and welcome to episode five of Footprints on Our Hearts, which I thought was going out on the last day of February, but as I finally realised a few days ago, it's actually a leap year this year, so we get an extra day. I'm clearly behind the times, but really I just still want it to be Pancake Day. Um, I didn't actually get to eat any pancakes on Pancake Day, so I think I might have to have a second Pancake Day next week. Anyway, This week, I am talking to Emma Jeffries, who's a life and business coach. And Emma also volunteers with Sam's and heads up the bereavement support for her local branch. Her daughter, Amelia, was stillborn in 2012, and her second daughter, Ophelia, is now six. And it was really great to talk to Emma, both about her experience with Amelia's death and in particular about her grief journey after that and how she reached a crossroads point which she talks about in the interview and she made a conscious decision to to choose happiness and that that doesn't mean leaving grief behind but it's perhaps a way of living your life while carrying that grief with you. So I hope you enjoy the interview. As always, I've got date stamps in the show notes if there's any sections you want to skip. We do talk a bit about pregnancy after loss. So if that is a trigger for you, then you you might want to skip that section. And I've got the links in the show notes to Emma's coaching business at Action Women. And she is on also on Instagram. In terms of a personal update this week, um, if you listen to last week's episode, I mentioned that we were about to head off up to Northumberland to complete our sponsored run. And this was uh, the Northumberland Endurance Life event, which is a series of trail runs of different lengths. And my husband signed up to do the marathon and I'd signed up to do the half marathon. So the good news is we did it. Yay. (laughs) We didn't survive quite unscathed. We ended up having a little trip to the minor injuries unit um, after the run as my husband managed to slip over it was really muddy for quite a large proportion of the start of his race and he slipped over and kind of gashed his leg quite badly so um we took him to get it all cleaned and scraped out by by the nurse and he's now wandering around sporting a bandage but he is fine (laughs) and he did manage to complete the rest of his race so I'm really proud of him for that Um, and I managed to get around my half marathon I'm not gonna lie it's one of the most brutal runs I've ever done. If you live in the UK or if you've been in the north of the UK, then you'll know it's been really stormy for the last few weeks. Um, And while we were quite lucky in terms of not having too much rain and, and we didn't have any flooding up there, it was super windy. And that wind was a headwind for pretty much the full run. Um, So I think there were gusts of up to about 45 miles an hour. And there were points in the final couple of miles where I was struggling to to literally just to walk forwards. I couldn't even run because the wind was so strong. Um, And because a lot of the run is along the beach, you had all the sand kind of whipping up into your face and getting grit into your eyes and all those kind of things. So it was it was definitely a tough event. But there were some bonuses. We so we actually took our van up and camped, uh, sort of wild camped in an event car park overnight the night before. And it was super windy. We, I'm not sure we really slept at all. The van was rocking for most of the night and that was not us, that was the wind. Um, so yeah, we didn't have much sleep, but when we woke up, and looked out the window, there was a beautiful rainbow, which I think I posted a picture about on my Instagram. Um, And that just said to me, oh, that was Sky telling us, you know, got to get up, mum and dad, got to go out there and do your run. And then as I was getting, I guess, maybe towards about the nine mile stage, nine or 10 miles into the run, and we had a really heavy rain and a hail shower, 
um, which was pretty miserable, you know, along with the wind. But after that came the most beautiful rainbow, one of the most beautiful rainbows I've ever seen. And it was arching over the sea with the islands kind of in the curve of it. And I wish now I'd stopped to take a photo, but at the time I was head down plodding mode and feeling pretty uncomfortable, so I didn't. But I did have a look at it and smile and thought, well, that's a sign from all those babies up there in the sky that they want us to keep going and make it to the end. And we did. And we um, have, I think we've around the halfway point on our fundraising target. So we're over a thousand pounds. So thank you, huge thank you to everyone who's sponsored us. And we're going to carry on um, fundraising for Tommy's um, in Sky's memory until we hit our target and hopefully get beyond that at some point. Um, so yeah, this week has generally been about not running <laughs> and taking a bit of time to chill out. And and we are actually off on holiday tomorrow as well for a week. So really looking forward to that and having a break. Anyway, I will stop rambling and let you get into the interview. As always, I would love to hear your comments and feedback on the podcast interviews we've had to date and any ideas for things you'd like to think about in future. Um, you can email me. My email address is alison at Footprints on Our Hearts or get in touch via Instagram or Twitter. Right, let's get on with the show. Today, I'm joined on the podcast by Emma, a life and business coach who lives with her family in Kent. Emma's first daughter, Amelia, was stillborn in 2012, and today we're going to talk about Amelia and how her short life inspired Emma to help other parents through their grief journeys and change her own career path. So welcome to the show, Emma. Thank you. Could you start by briefly introducing yourself and your family? Absolutely. So I'm Emma Jeffries. Um, as you say, I live in Kent and I live with my husband and I have um, a daughter here with me, Ophelia, who is six years old, um, and her sister, who sadly isn't with us, um, Amelia Rose, as you say, born eight years ago now. So we're going to start by talking about Amelia. How was your journey to get pregnant with her? I was one of those people that I can now see floating around in that naive bubble in that I fell pregnant very quickly um, with my first pregnancy and sadly had a mis miscarriage at 12 weeks so I went for the 12-week scan and there was no heartbeat and was utterly devastated felt like the worst thing that had ever happened um, and it was a very very difficult time um, but was very blessed to be pregnant again relatively quickly um, with Amelia and I was scared, I think, having lost already, but kind of gently went through that pregnancy, um, everything looking very boring and very normal um, until I had actually uh, a blood test that came back suggesting that there may be a high risk um, of her having some form of abnormality, maybe even a condition not compatible with life. And was that one of the routine blood tests which they offer or was that a special blood test which you'd have had to have for other reasons? No, it was a routine blood test and it was a bit of a shock actually because everything had kind of looked pretty average. And as I say, it was indicators. It was a, you know, but it came back with a one in four chance of maybe something like Patel syndrome or Edwards, perhaps Downs. Um, and so we kind of went from this, everything's really normal to suddenly being rushed to King's and having a CVS and kind of having to kind of go through a whole waiting process to see if there was anything um, up with the pregnancy. And I still remember the date. It was the 19th of December, 2011, where we had the call. I was at work to say that everything was clear. Everything was completely fine. She was a perfectly healthy little baby girl. And I still remember that feeling of relief. Um, when we had that call, just thinking, okay, that was hell, waiting for results and not knowing what the future held, but that we were kind of, yeah, all clear. <laughs> Best Christmas present ever, I guess. It was at the time. It was that absolutely amazing feeling that I could kind of relax into the pregnancy at last and that I could kind of really start to in, enjoy it. And I guess that's a feeling that's always stuck with me, that actually it almost felt like the minute I dared let my guard down, uh yeah tough times 
around the corner. Um, so a bit of a, a lulled into a full sense of security, I guess. Yeah. So you've been given the all clear, relaxing and enjoying everything. At what point after that did things then start to go wrong? We had a wonderful Christmas and I was pregnant at the same time as my sister-in-law. So we both sat eating all the chocolate on my mother-in-law's <laughs> sofa with our bumps. And then in early, well, mid-January, um, I was working from home and I had a really routine midwife appointment that afternoon and potted down. And I remember the day really clearly because it's one of those weird days where I bumped into a neighbour who said she had some baby bits to give me. A neighbour dropped around a baby name book and I bumped into someone and kind of remember really talking about the pregnancy, probably with the most amount of excitement I had so far. And then went to the, the, the midwife appointment and uh, when she, as I say, routine, hopped up onto the bed, should we have a quick listen? She couldn't find a heartbeat with a Doppler. And even then she didn't panic. I didn't think anything was wrong. She she kind of made a joke about, you know, pesky little things sometimes can hide and maybe she'd moved into an awkward position. And I clearly started to look a bit worried. And my midwife said she wished someone had gone to the hospital with me because she didn't think she was sending me to have the scan that I ended up having. So it was very much, let's get make sure you get a good night's sleep. Let's just pop you up to the hospital, have a quick look at baby, and then we can all kind of carry on. So did she genuinely she did she genuinely think that everything was okay and that she couldn't she just couldn't get the heartbeat? I think so. I mean if if professionally she had a deeper worry, it certainly didn't come out at the time. I kind mm. of naively trotted up to the hospital. And I do remember standing in the middle of our road, kind of car keys in hand, thinking, Do I need to call anybody? Do I not? That kind of moment. But because no one else seemed panicked, I kind of just drove myself to hospital and and sat waiting for the scan. Did you think at that point everything was probably okay? It's really hard looking back, isn't it's it? It's hard, isn't it? Because I had, I mean, I had a similar, I had a similar thing. I mean, we went to the hospital because I had reduced movements, but and she listened with the Doppler and she couldn't hear the heartbeat. But she was just like, oh well, well, you know, we'll just get a scan just to reassure you that everything's okay. And I honestly, I mean, I, I guess part of me must have thought that, and maybe I just wanted to. Maybe you just want to push that down and you, you don't actually want to believe that that is a possibility. Um, you know, you want to believe that it is okay. And if I'm really honest, and again, you know, when 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 I hear people getting cross with people that haven't experienced stillbirth, I think we have to remember we were once that person. And I don't know if I actually knew it could happen like that. I don't actually, mm-hmm. I think maybe at some level deep down, I realised that could happen. But I don't think consciously I thought, right, I'm off to find out whether my baby is alive or not. I kind of... I think we felt like we'd been so through so much already. Yeah, I, I don't think I, I don't think I saw what was coming at all. So you went to the hospital, and were you on your own, or was your husband with yeah, you? Yeah, I was on my own. He was working in London, so I called. I think when I got to the hospital and said, "I'm just coming up for a scan." It's you know it's routine, but they had a bit of problem finding heartbeat at the um, at the midwife appointment. And he he said, you know, I'll I'll leave and and come back and sort of see how you are. So I think perhaps he twigged that something wasn't quite right. Um, and I remember sitting in wherever I was waiting for the scan. There were lots of le- people in labour. There was a woman using KFC. It's funny what you remember when you look back. But you know, I was kind of quite just focused on all these people, thinking, wow, that will be me at some point. You know, there they are, all kind of in various throes of waiting to have their baby. Um, and then I was called in to a side room for a scan and they used a little kind of slightly weird scan machine that they use, I think, just to check position of baby before labour. So it's not particularly detailed, sort of weird green and black screen. And yeah, oh, I remember them scanning me and then just the silence in the room and the look on the midwife's face as she said I'd like to get you a scan downstairs where we can see more clearly and I think they didn't say the words then but I the penny started to drop that something really wasn't right um yeah and then they walked me downstairs to a proper scan room and I remember them scanning me and her saying that uh, there was a doctor there as well and the midwife and just saying I'm so sorry and then I remember hearing this noise and thinking, what is that noise? And it wasn't till way after that she, she was born that I realised it was me just howling, proper 
animal sounds, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, and that whole bit still feels like a real shock. I remember reading in my notes afterwards that I was visibly distressed and thought, well, that's the answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the most ridiculous comment I've ever heard. I mean, <laughs> oh, um, oh. yeah, and then. I was taken to, we're very lucky, so Pembury, our local hospital, super hospital, you know, sort of state-of-the-art, um, incredible hospital, and there is an amazing um, suite there, uh, which was built, um, called the Hope Butler Suite, in memory of a little girl called Hope, and supported by Sands. And I was taken there to kind of take in the news, make various phone calls, and wait to see the consultant about kind of what happened and were they able to tell you at that point anything about why she might have died? Did you have this sort of link in your head in terms of the blood test results she'd had? Did you think that might be part of it? Or was it just a case of she needs to be born and then and then we'll, we'll yeah, see? I think because she'd had, you know, I'd gone to gone such thorough detailed tests. I think I, at the time it didn't even cross my mind there could be any link between those because she'd come back clear with everything. And actually, as many people find, you know, the postmortem came back totally. She was a perfectly healthy baby girl and, and they could find nothing wrong with me either. So no one kind of even talked about what might be the cause. I think they were just trying to get me to come to terms with a that this was happening I think you do go into that kind of shock and then trying to get me to understand what was going to happen next and again this is something that I find really weird now I'm on the other side of her birth because I remember thinking they were mad I remember thinking there has to be another way for her to be born that I, I the thought of delivering her the emotional pain of delivering her knowing she wasn't going to be crying or breathing, I just thought was the worst form of torture you could ever ask somebody to undergo. And I remember thinking there must be a better way in, in the 21st century that we can that we can do this. And I, I think, again, I understand now why some people who haven't been through it imagine there must have been another way too. I find myself really having to hit home the fact that she was born, that I delivered her, I gave birth to her. Um, and your first birth as well, yeah, your first experience of birth as well. So yeah. I guess you've got all those kind of those natural kind of thoughts and nerves and worries going through your head in terms of like giving the process of giving birth and how your body's going to respond to that and how you're going to respond to that, as well as the fact that you know that you're not going to get that that living crying baby at the end of it I, I, it's funny actually I remember and I can look and laugh at myself now it was like cramming for an exam because I was like I haven't read those chapters of the books yet and I kind of was panic reading them going <laughs> you know someone's brought the deadline forward <laughs> I need to get up to speed I was exactly the same I basically hit google <laughs> for 24 hours before going back into the hospital <laughs> it's just mad and I remember you know so I I was given I went back into, I think how they had to scan me again and then I had to have these drugs to start the induction. But I do remember someone said it must have been so awful those two days before you gave birth to her. And I was like, no, actually, I kind of wanted to stay there. Like I was very happy taking her home. It sounds funny saying it now, but taking her home and I wanted to keep her safe. And I didn't want to give birth to her because I knew that was kind of the saying goodbye bit. Um, yeah, it's weird how the brain works I think during loss to help protect you and to but at the time I was like actually this is good I'll go home with her I'll pretend that nothing's happened nothing's changed I mean I think I think you do and I very much felt that I went into survival mode and I think you do because part of you is like well this is it I I just have to get through it and there is no choice I have to do it and I think maybe you know, when you don't have that choice, then you do step up to the plate because you do not have a choice. And you're like, right, well, well, what do I need to do now? And as I said, you know, I was Googling, well, what happens when you give birth? How is an induction different to a normal birth? Because I mm. had no idea about that. I think I'd done a bit of breathing in my yoga classes and that was about it. I didn't even know what I should be packing in my like hospital bag. Because yeah. obviously, I mean, I hadn't even thought about that. But clearly, you know, you're not going to be bringing your baby home. So that's you know, even looking that kind of stuff up. But I think you do go into 
that mode and I mean it's obviously different for every person but there is perhaps tendency to almost shut off part of that emotion and that hits you later yeah but for that you know for that bit of time you're just surviving and going into I remember I spoke to really close friends and I went into real I was kind of giving orders to everyone you know can you cancel pregnancy yoga and can you let NCT know I won't be back and can you do this and can you and you're looking back they were probably thinking hold on a minute what but I they were they were the only bits I could control I couldn't control Mm -hmm. what was unraveling and what I was going to have to go through so I think I went into real practical kind of yeah admin (laughs) admin mode um but as you say because I don't think you know what else to do and and you do realize I think looking back that you're only given the grief and the emotion in chunks because you couldn't deal with it all in one Mm. in one go so you went back into hospital a couple of days later. Um, was was your birth fairly straightforward in terms of obviously taking aside the the fact that you were giving birth to you know a dead baby at the end of the day? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was the. Did they treat you well? They did. Um, I the, my midwife was utterly amazing, and you know I had a bit of a breakdown in the morning, begging for a c-section I think this is quite common and 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 or an epidural I didn't really care I was just like I don't want to feel I can't I can't feel any more than the emotional pain don't give me the physical pain as well and the midwife she was wonderful and I remember her kneeling down and looking at me in the eyes and just saying you are going to deliver this baby and you're going to deliver her purposefully into this world sorry this always gets to me but because it's the last thing you can do for her and you're going to do it right and I kind of hated her at the time <laughs> and thought you're nuts and you don't know what you're talking about and who are you to tell me to do you know, I remember thinking all these things at this wonderfully kind lady and the minute Amelia Rose was born I got it and I say it now to women I work with I was like actually there was such beauty and pride in delivering her that I'm glad that I got talked out of all my ridiculous ideas of kind of magicking her away. And I think from a grief perspective as well, you know, recognising my body, recognising and my mind, recognising what had just happened is a really important part of that journey. Um, yeah. You know, had I been knocked out and woken up, it would have been even harder to get my head around, I think. Yeah. And I do think it is one of the the hardest and bravest things you can do is to go through that. And I guess part of it is perhaps also it's it's that evidence that you are a mother like everyone else. You've been through that same process, you know, and and what you said before about what other people think. And honestly, what I perhaps thought, you know, before my experience was, you know, if you had, you know, if you had a loss at full term, you know, if your baby died at full term, then yes, you have to go through and give birth. But earlier on, it was literally like, well, how does this baby go from being in my stomach to out, out of my stomach? Mm. And yeah, you just you just don't think that actually you are going through exactly the same process as pretty much every other mother goes through. And I think that's what, you know, it's that short period of time where it, you know, that I think the kind of euphoria, the happy hormones, I was saying this to someone a while ago, it's weird because they're still there. You know, I did feel peace and calm until everyone starts wanting to talk to you about postmortems and mm-hmm. signing forms. And I didn't have, you know, I didn't have a daughter yesterday and now I have one but she's dead and I've got to sign bits of paper and release her body and I just remember that just felt like the weirdest contrast life and death just coming together in one moment that felt so massively overwhelming um and it's something we've spoken a lot about with the hospital now um with some of the voluntary work I do about kind of how that process happens because actually to throw all of that at no one would do that to you just after birth with a with a live baby. They wouldn't start throwing paperwork at you. But mm-hmm. suddenly, there's an awful lot to kind of take on board. And were you able to spend a bit of time with Amelia before you left hospital? My um, husband and mother um, spent a bit of time in the other room with her. I was kind of otherwise engaged, having difficulty with placenta and bits. Yeah, all that. Yeah, well, that I hadn't too. Read, read that chapter in the book. Um, no. I thought it just came out, you know. <laughs> but I do remember the just trying to leave the hospital was impossibly difficult. You know, I was finding every procrastination trick in the book not to leave because I knew I was kind of walking away from her and it felt so desperately unnatural. Um, and walking out of the hospital that night, it 
when I, when I've been back to the hospital, I've walked the same walk, and it's a really short corridor. And yet, on the day, it felt like the longest walk ever away from that delivery suite. Um, yeah, empty arms. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story with us. And did you did you at the time did you know anyone else who'd been through any sort of similar experience, or was this all new to you? I, it's such a weird question. It's not a weird question. It, the, the answer's <laughs> weird. It is. It's not. It's a, yes, I did, but maybe I hadn't really connected um, with their stories in the way that I could have done. And I, I think you have to forgive people when they don't connect with yours, because I think sometimes we miss the real impact of baby loss on people's lives. So actually, yeah, I had a, a really good friend who'd uh, lost her baby and I hadn't really understood what she meant by that I don't think I think I've been a bit of a rubbish friend uh, and there were a few other people in my lives including close family who I just didn't really understand the full enormity so they were there but maybe I'd never connected with them on that level before mm. if that makes sense yeah definitely and those initial weeks and months of grief are really hard what was your experience of that? And perhaps what was the kindest thing that someone did for you around that time? I mean, the grief in those early days, as you'll know, it's so overwhelming. Like, I remember thinking, I don't think I can survive this pain. Like, just the physical pain of grief and the intensity and rawness of it all was just huge. And I think... The things that really stick in my mind, there's a friend who I, I didn't really want to talk to people. I didn't really want, didn't know what really I had to say. I kind of just cried a lot and uh, or repeated myself. I wanted to talk about the birth and and talk about her as any new mother would do. Um, and so the friend I think that really got it was she just called the same time every single week. And no matter what state I was in or whether I wanted to be put on the phone or not, she was on that phone and I think I did just sort of sob down the phone to her quite a lot or repeat myself but she was there the entire you know until I I was strong enough to kind of start calling her when I wanted to talk to her so she was just there no matter what and sort of took me as I was um another very close friend who had also lost um a baby she lost one of her twins she had a most beautiful um, embroidered butterfly with Amelia Rose's name done for me and again just seeing your baby's name written was so special and then the my absolute rock you know my my mum just was there scooped us up whenever we needed it seemed to know the right things to say and the right things to do and looking back I can't imagine the pain as grandmother let alone the pain as mother and all that that brings watching kind of your child go through mm -hmm. go through that so I, I was blessed there was an awful lot of kindness um around us from lots of different directions and did you find that you and your husband grieved differently or the same differently and I remember because I don't know about you but you suddenly start reading everything google is your friend and forums are your friends um I remember reading the stats around couples splitting up after baby loss and I do remember thinking if we're not careful this is going to be us because I think you don't realize even though you both love this little person so much your grief is very selfish isn't it it's a very selfish emotion it's you kind of do it at different speeds and different ways and um we we did we went for counseling had the most amazing counselor um because it was important to really hear each other I think and not get caught up in our own stories and our own pain and sometimes it's even hard to start those conversations and have those conversations because you don't want to hurt the other person or you're not sure they're in the right frame of mind or yeah it is I mean it's it must be one of the it well it is one of the hardest things that that couples can go through and I think it's really great that you reached out and got some help and support with that yeah and I think actually you know it it, it taught us how to listen to each other and it, it taught us a lot about communicating which is always a good thing isn't it so it's kind of um, how have you found your grief journeys changed over time? So over the past years, and also what was your lowest point and how did you get through that? So, as I said, you know, that grief, the overwhelming nature of grief in those early days when you don't think you can survive it, the analogy I've kind of used 
to make sense of it to me over the years is it was like being in a really rough sea and being pulled under those waves and like you were choking and suffocating and you didn't know when you were going to come up for breath again and now I feel and there was a particular point when it changed but now I feel grief is still there you know I, I think people think it magically disappears but I feel like it's more waves around my ankles I kind of know they're there I can feel it all the time it's there at some level um and occasionally a huge wave knocks me over and the wave is as big and the impact is as massive and it hurts as much but I can get up quicker and I know that there will be more time and more light and more goodness and happiness before another wave comes I think um but for me to answer the other bits, you know, the, the lowest point was definitely driving the car relatively early after I lost her and thinking, I remember thinking there was a lorry coming towards me and I wasn't suicidal in that I wanted to kill myself. But I remember thinking how easy it would be to turn the wheel and for the pain to stop. And I really wanted that pain to stop because it was crushing me. And it really frightened me to the point that I made my husband take the car keys and I made him hide all medication, which sounds very dramatic. But I just thought, actually, that's a clue that somewhere in here, this pain is is not um, making me as mentally sound as perhaps I could be. And, you know, we went, I went for the counselling. I talked lots about it. And that was the main thing for me was I did not let myself have those thoughts on my own. I voiced them to my mum and my husband I promised I would never keep any thoughts like that a secret because I think that's when they become dangerous is when they're internalized. Um, and slowly I ran, I did, I used to run up to the cemetery to, to visit her grave. And that was kind of a, a good kind of physical mental health release for me. And then one day, and I talk about this with clients, I stood at what felt like a very physical crossroads, albeit in my mind. And I remember thinking you have a choice. The path you are on is dark and twisted and it probably leads to a really horrible, bitter place where you stay a victim. But it's the easy path to walk because you're on it already and you kind of know what it looks like. Or if you turn the other way, it's going to be a harder journey. But at the end of that, it's a brighter, happier, more meaningful place. And I remember thinking, how sad if in her name you decide to stay on that bitter, dark path and it's one of the things I you know I preach all the time happiness is a choice you know I chose on that day to choose to be happy despite her death and I think that was a massive turning point for me. And do you remember how long that was after her death that you had that crossroads moment? Probably about six months I would say. I think you know you can't we know physically you can't stay in those early days of grief you wouldn't want to but I think it gets very muddled sometimes. I think, you know, lots of people, myself included, you feel the guilt when you laugh or you when you when she's not the first thing on your mind when you wake up. And I think recognizing that actually pain and grief and loss and sadness can coexist with hope and happiness. And I remember thinking and I think this was an important turning point for me was I wasn't doing this without her. I wanted to do this because of her. I wanted to make her life count and for her to have a legacy that was worthy of her if that makes sense yeah 100 percent. and we'll come on to talk about her legacy in a minute but first I just wanted to touch on Ophelia so you do have a second daughter how did you and your husband decide when you were ready to start thinking about trying again and how did you find being pregnant with her so I, and again, I know through work with Sands that this is quite common, but I, whilst I was grieving emotionally, the physical side of it almost was like, I just want to be pregnant again. I just need to kind of continue the journey that I was on, which is all a bit messy. Um, and I actually did fall pregnant relatively quickly. And we lost um, another baby after Amelia um, at about the 10 week stage, who we, which we know was a little boy. Um, and... Then we waited a while because I wanted to make sure there was nothing going on. As I say, everyone said that Amelia was perfect and there was nothing wrong. But for me, I was like, there's three babies now not here that should be. And I don't really understand. So we kind of pressed pause while we went through a load of 
tests um, and everything came back completely fine. Um, and so when I fell pregnant with Ophelia, it's safe to say I was utterly terrified. But with terror comes hope, you know. I think I used to say I felt like I was in a really dark hole that I'd been thrown into and there was sunshine at the top, but that sunshine came with a bit of a nine-month ladder to it that I was going to have to try and climb to get there. And I was aware that I could slide down that ladder numerous times, but the only way to the sun was to was to kind of get back on the ladder. So, yeah, it was um, – physically, I loved it. I, I absolutely relished every minute of being pregnant physically. Couldn't have loved my bump more um, – find yes the courses elements and difficulties with being pregnant but I could not be ungrateful for those for one minute so physically it was beautiful and I made a decision with the help of um, the support group that I was attending which was that I had two choices I could live the whole pregnancy in fear of her dying or I could live the pregnancy as if that's all we might have together and so I did pregnancy yoga and I spent time connecting with her and I thought if this is all we have if you um join your sister then I'm going to have no regrets I wasn't waiting the pregnancy wasn't a means to an end if that makes sense so physically it was great emotionally uh, a bit of a roller coaster I think I think the sense of responsibility I felt as the carrier of this precious cargo and somehow feeling that my body let me down before and I didn't even know it you know that I had no idea that there was anything wrong or that she died, I actually that I found that a massive weight to carry. And everyone around you is on tenterhooks going, how's the baby? And you're thinking, I wish I knew. <laughs> I'm doing my best here. I'm working with the data I have. So lots of, you know, lying on random um, toilet floors, um, poking her in the middle of the day <laughs> to see if I could make sure she was moving. And um, yeah, having threatened to be up at the hospital living on a monitor I was actually quite restrained but I think that's that's the difference is sadly after loss you have such a well I was very lucky to have a complete kind of a team around me of medical professionals and I only had to say the word and I could be seen I had a midwife who said you know your mental health is is the most important thing here and I saw her weekly in between scans for a quick five minute Doppler because that was the only way I could get you know week to week so no I in many ways, a great pregnancy with a sprinkling of terror. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and how did it feel that moment when you did finally get to bring her home? Incredible. Right at the last minute, I ended up having a section because um, I went in to be induced at 38 weeks and I wasn't looking that ready. And I think the fear of kind of getting into a whole failed induction, just baby in distress, people made good calls and decided that was not clever. So, um, I went in for a section and I, when she was um, handed to me, I cried, she's alive. And everyone looked a bit kind of shocked in theatre. But until the moment I could see her and she cried, I still didn't believe she was coming out alive. And it was the best sound I've ever heard. <laughs> the relief, um, yeah, that she was here was amazing. Absolutely amazing. Amazing. And do you talk about Amelia with her I do she knows all about her sister and we've always talked about her so there was never a kind of moment she's just grown up knowing that that that's who she is and um I'm super proud of how she deals with it it's difficult I think the, the older she's getting she's six now there's more awareness and more questions um but she brags about her in the playground to her friends there's occasionally civil civil uh, sibling rivalry about the fact that she was stronger because she made it home which I have to smile about um and there's a million questions that I wish I could answer for her like why she's not here but she's you know she understands that I have the same questions and that I wish she was as well so yeah there's there's a comfort in Ophelia accepting the sister she never met into the family as easily as she has done that's amazing okay let's talk a bit about Amelia's legacy then and in particular I'd like to chat a bit about what led you to volunteer with Sands um, could you perhaps start by explaining what SANS is, just in case anyone listening hasn't come across them, and how you got involved and uh, how you took that decision to become more involved with them? 
Yeah, so SANS is the um, Stillbirth and Neonatal Death Society. And I've uh, I've never heard of them. And I think they're one of these, again, like so many charities, incredible charities that just kind of go under the radar until you're in the situation that we've been in. Um, I, I first came across them. There were leaflets in the Hope Butler suite in a drawer, kind of how to prepare for labour when your baby's died and things like talking to your employers and things. And I remember kind of picking these things up and thinking, I probably need to read these at some point. Um, And then in the days that followed after her birth, I did a bit of research and was like, actually, these sound like an amazing charity. I realise now that they had provided the Hope Butler suite. And so um, I started doing a bit of fundraising before I'd even really been to a support group. Um, in Amelia's name and from there realized that there was a support group literally down the road from us so they run uh, they're all run by volunteers um, they're bereaved parents um, who have trained as befrienders and who create a safe space to share kind of whatever's going on for you right now and my husband and I must have stumbled into that first meeting probably only two or three weeks after she was born because I wasn't quite sure what else to do. I remember thinking it it sounds like it's a good thing to do and I don't know if I'll ever be ready, so why not do it now? And I walked into that group and there were a bunch of wonderful people in there and they were laughing about something happened on EastEnders. And I remember thinking, these people are doing more than just surviving. You know, they've she's got makeup on, she's kind of dressed and looking like she may have even been to work and they're laughing and they're smiling and whilst I didn't really process it at the time I think that was hope right there that maybe at some point we wouldn't be where we were right now and yeah looking back I think it was an amazing lifeline so we both attended the groups um sometimes the two of us sometimes just me but we kind of went monthly sort of religiously it became like this real to get through another month of the journey and check in again was a really helpful kind of from milestone to milestone that you were moving forward. Um, and when I was pregnant with Ophelia, we run um, a pregnancy after loss support group that's separate from the bereavement group. So again, there's a midwife in there as well with a bereaved parent. So just having that emotional support through the journey was incredible. And so not long after Ophelia came home, I said that I'd be very happy to help out with the pregnancy group, having just gone through it and kind of brought a baby home through that process. So started volunteering um, until I was ready and ready enough to leave Ophelia to go and do my befriender training um, and started helping with the support groups. And then in just a change of committee and how it was all sort of moving around, ended up um, heading up the bereavement support team locally. So it's quite an organic journey really but it's funny someone said you know when you spend two hours on the phone to a newly bereaved parent late on a Sunday night I remember this girl saying to me thank you so much you know you've helped me you've given up so much of your time and I had to remind her I said you've given me you know I'm I'm in this with you as a bereaved parent and actually I don't do this selflessly (laughs) in some ways it's selfish because it's what helps me make sense I have knowledge I didn't ask to lose her I didn't ask to go through that but through that comes knowledge and comes strategies for coping and strength that I kind of feel I have. it's my job to therefore help those coming behind me. And I guess it's, it is Amelia's legacy and it's, it's giving that back and allowing you to take something positive from that experience. Um, and I guess it is almost like a way of you spending time dedicated to your first daughter and you know her legacy and and what she's doing as well as obviously parenting Ophelia absolutely and I think you know you through working with so many different parents you start to see the themes where you can really you know where you can change things so we've done loads of work with the amazing hospital team but how can you make things easier at someone's kind of lowest point through the whole kind of process and system and then how do you give people the courage that they may not have to, I don't know, talk about their child or say how many children they've got or stand up for some of the kind of, you know, you do get ridiculous comments from people after (laughs) you've lost a baby. And some people sort of can't find the way to express that that's not really how they want to be spoken to. So I think, yeah, there's strength in, in coming together and sharing experiences and 
just not feeling alone. Mm, definitely. And um, and you mentioned in, I think it was a blog post or something I read, that your experience of having and then losing Amelia led to a bit of a career change for you. So could you perhaps talk about what your job was before Amelia and how you went about creating that change and I guess your your thought process and how your experience with Amelia fed into that? Absolutely. I mean, I consider myself very lucky. You know, before Amelia was born, I had a wonderful career in advertising. Um, uh, was, I worked as a planning director for um, a, a marketing agency. And I love my job. I loved my clients. I had it was surrounded by amazing people, very interesting, kind of diverse people. And yeah, felt very passionate about what I did. But I think I, I said to someone not long after Amelia died that it was a bit like being on autopilot and then Amelia's death was a bit like the crash that totaled the autopilot suddenly I kind of woke up and thought actually I'm not quite sure where I am and I'm not quite sure who I am after loss I'm going to have to refine myself and and re-kind of connect and in doing that I think you start to your priorities have changed your values change you just see the world slightly differently and I started to realize that actually certainly post her that maybe it not that I didn't like my job but I didn't care enough about the the output so I didn't really which is a not great place to be right if clients are paying you you should care about what you're delivering for them so I remember having this kind of wrestle thinking actually you know I loved my job but perhaps I need to start thinking about something else and when I started thinking about what all my skill sets were but also what I'd learned through volunteering with SANS and also this new, I guess, the light bulb that went on, which is I am a product of post-traumatic growth. You know, it took trauma to make me take charge of my life and do something I really want to do. And so many people do that, whether it's divorce or illness or, you know, grief. Actually, life is so short. Why are we all waiting for the crash before we do that? So it all came together in a bit of a beautiful, perfect storm in that I picked up the phone on I can't remember how, which year it was now so now I'm gonna but anyway on Amelia's birthday uh, a few years ago I picked up the phone and booked myself onto my training course to become a coach um, and that really the rest was history I kind of was like do you know what I'm going to use your birthday as the day that I create that change um, and actually I when I talk about her now I lost a lot when she died but in so many ways, I gained things I didn't think were possible. You know, I, I didn't, <laughs> I did say, I'd like to point out, I didn't think I was a bad person before, but she um, has made me a better person. You know, she's given me empathy. She, I run towards people in pain, not away. I'm not afraid of difficult conversations or silence. Um, and I know, because I've done it, that you can be in your darkest, darkest, driving your car, looking at that lorry place, and you can use your mind to come back from there. And, you know, that's kind of why I do what I do now. I think that's really powerful. And I hope if there are people listening to this who are still in those really early dark days where it does feel like you are literally surviving until the next day and you don't know if you can survive or how you're going to get through, that your life has always been changed, but it will get better. It won't always be that, that bad. No, and it comes back to that crossroads, right? Yeah, I think it's at some point, and not in the early days, but at some point, you can choose without detracting from your love for them or how much you wish they were here or all that's wrong with them not being here. You can still choose to do things that make you happy and to live a happy, full life. The two things aren't mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. Were there any books or anything you read or came across that helped you get to that realization? I'm trying to think. I mean, I, I one of the weird things about baby loss is if you think it's one of the darkest things that can happen to you, and yet there are so many beautiful, amazing people in the baby loss community. I feel like a lot of my strength and inspiration came from the people in the support group, the people I was talking to online. Um, I'm in a I was in a Facebook group kind of an offshoot from people that I've met on the Sands forum who I'm still in touch with now we've all gone on to kind of have other babies together and kind of share that experience and 
the strength and inspiration from from I don't think it was really reading something I think Mm. it was just recognizing that I wasn't on my own and that if I chose to keep walking forward and making progress there were people around to kind of help support me do that yeah and I I I had a I think a similar kind of crossroads experience and um I did a I mean I did a fair bit of reading I always turn to books <laughs> my books are my thing and one of the books I read was a book by Brené Brown called Rising Strong I love Brené um I love Brené <laughs> I know and if anyone hasn't come across her she is amazing and she has some fantastic TED talks and things but I think this book I mean it's it's not specific about baby loss at all and I actually had some other stuff that I was dealing with other than just, you know, just my baby dying. And um, there were some other things going on in my head at that time. But it's a book around, it's a book around failure. It's a book around being in that really darkest depths of the blackest hole and how you pick yourself up from that. And not just how you do it, but that you can do it. Um, so if anyone's listening, that's that's one book that I did find <laughs> find really helpful. Well, we are about out of time. Thank you so much for sharing Amelia's story and talking with me today. Um, just before we sign off, would you like to tell people where they can find out more about you and your coaching business online? Absolutely. Um, I am online as Action Woman. There is no cape, sadly. I'll see if I can get one for years to come. But um, So you can find me at actionwoman.co.uk. I'm also on Instagram as Action Woman. And yeah, I do, you know, I'd love to hear from anybody um, who would like to talk to someone who's experienced baby loss. Always happy to kind of talk about where people are on their journey and be a listening um, ear. So, And if you haven't found Sam's already, your local support group really can be a complete lifeline and energy giver and i'll link to both of those in the show notes thank you so much for coming on the podcast emma thank you alison thank you for listening to this episode of footprints on our hearts please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on itunes you can follow me on instagram at footprints on our hearts and twitter at skies footprints For detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for Tommies, please visit our website, footprintsonourhearts.com.